listening to the Private Citizen Defending Your Right to Have Something to Hide, your podcast for critical thinkers. This is episode 115 for Wednesday, the 27th of April, 2022. A second winter war? Hello everybody, my name is Fab. I'm coming to you live from Düsseldorf in Germany, uh, where spring has sprung and the weather's getting better. And um, I've got a lot to do um, in all departments of my life. But hey, uh, I'm back. I'm back to Wednesday release schedule. That's pretty good. Um, the the reg regular reschedule. And today, tonight, whatever time it is for you when you listen to this, we're going to talk about um, Ukraine once again. I think I teased that um, in the last episode. We'll have to do some, a little bit of an update there. And... Um, Everything, everything goes according to plan. I'll do another episode for you this week at some point. Um, because, you know, I still need... I owe you some episodes. And we got to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. Uh, I feel that's, that, that's um, an, an important topic. And my voice is already giving in, which is not a good sign. Like, a minute into the podcast. I'm going to have some Earl Grey. Hot, of course. And yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. I'm back live. Um, back to the regular release schedule. Um, I feel like that's that's pretty cool. So um, without further ado, uh, let's get into the topic we got, we want to talk about. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Ukraine once again. Uh, because I feel like you know that's where. Every, where you know that's where that's what what everybody's talking about that's uh, it's not specifically where everything's happening because i mean as i talked about previously um the uh the the war has been going on for ages um and you know there's definitely other wars going on but you know this is the this is the important war it's close to home when you're in europe i guess um and um yeah, so I think we should uh, I should talk a little bit about uh, what's what's been going on. If you go to the show notes, privatecitizen.press, um, I've produced a new map, um, which uh, as as I record this, I, I did this like last week, but you know, not that much has changed. So we can we can kind of uh, go go by this map and um, have a look at um, what's been going on. So so it basically looks like the Russian. Uh, advance has um, has stalled, and you know they've um, basically given up their push towards Kiev and evacuated all of that territory they had uh, captured up north. And um, it looks like they're trying to consolidate the um, the eastern uh, the territory in the east, uh, and with the with giving up with giving up the um, area around Kiev. We of course had the um, the you know the discovery of the uh, what's been called the the the, the mass massacre in uh, Bucha, where basically uh, lots of uh, civilians um, were killed. Uh, looks like in the initial fighting, pretty much, um, and in the time that the Russian army had um, you know kind of um, you know control control of that area i guess um but um 
yeah, I'm I'm not gonna go into that so much. That's obviously horrible. Um, but you know, I mean, on the other hand, it, that's kind of war, right? War is always horrible. I talked a little bit in in previous episodes. I mean, if you go to the show notes, um, there's tags at the top, right? If you go to privatecitizen.press slash episode slash one one five, you get to this one, and it's like way at the top there's tax and there's like war in ukraine is a a good tag that has all the episodes um i would urge you to probably if you if this is like the first one you're listening to on this topic uh, i'll kind of urge you um to go back um at least to episode 112 um where i talk about kind of what i think putin's war goals are for this war and um, where you can also see the first map like how the um invasion was uh was going initially and um you know um i'm going to talk a little bit more about um this idea of a blitzkrieg which i talked about back then which seems to people seem to seem to bring up which they which which is the general accepted opinion that that was the russian idea um you know cover as much territory as possible and i already said that you know i don't think that was that was the case and we're going to talk about that a little bit more so i've looked at this quite a lot recently and you know like uh, military tactics and, and 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 thought about what i what i think the russians were doing and uh, a thing that comes up that a lot of people bring also up is like the similarities to the uh, winter war so uh, when the soviet union invaded finland in the beginning of um world war ii like this 39 40 it was like november 1939 till I think March 1940, um, kind of a preemptive attack by the Soviet Union trying to, you know, the Finnish border is really close to, I mean, I talked about this in the beginning, um, what I feel like is like this Russian angst, you know, with 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 Moscow, but especially St. Petersburg, which used to be the capital, being very close to Europe, and in this case, Finland, um, if you look at a map, you see it's very close, and they were kind of trying to preemptively um, I, I guess push into Finland. So the Germans, I think Stalin was was afraid that the Germans would invade Finland and then attack the Soviet Union through Finland. Um, and so, so he basically invaded first. And we had the Winter War, and um, in in which the as very small um, and and woefully unequipped Finnish army. Um, had huge successes against a uh, overpowered red army right and and um and a, a, a badly prepared red army there there are some similarities here um i think they i think the general the analysis of people's uh, people's analysis of the, of the similarities is pretty much right i think most people are drawing the wrong conclusions from this but we're, we're going to get into that so i want to talk about that a little bit i want to talk about the this this idea of um, of a blitzkrieg, of what that actually means, where the, where the word comes from, um, why I don't again, why I don't think the Russians were doing that here, and why it's not a very Russian thing to do. Generally, it's not a typical Russian military doctrine. And then I want to kind of wrap it up and and talk about what I think this all means for this war. And um, so my idea is that this is going to be, uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to do updates on the situation because it's obviously very important. Uh, it's politically very important um, when something develops, something significant, but I'm not going to like do 
regular episodes on this. I think it's a very important topic. That's why I'm covering it, but I'm not going like, to make this the main topic of the show. This is not a history podcast, really. I mean, I like to talk about history. Granted, it's a politics podcast, of course, uh, uh, and um, this influences politics i'm gonna talk about you know it's just gonna it's gonna come up again and again because just like the um the sars um cov cov2 pandemic um this um war is a huge it's is is the catalyst for a uh a political for political changes in europe or it's been also i i think largely been used um somewhat as an excuse to uh, make political changes that, that, you know, the people in power um, and the people who can make political changes kind of want to make. I mean, there's a huge energy politics uh, involved here that we need to talk about. Um, sometimes even, you know, things that, that are right, like really far-fetched, um, you know, there's like oil... Um, being brought up a lot like mineral oil i'm not talking like you know um sunflower the cooking oil which is actually produced in ukraine and people are like afraid that they're running gonna run out of no i'm, I'm talking like you know car petrol stuff which um i mean if we're talking gas right so the russian um gas reserves and, and selling gas to europe that that is of course bloody impacted by this and i understand that um but you know, petrol, um, oil, really isn't <laughs> because you know, I mean, there's certainly some oil uh, being sold by Russia, but like the the vast uh, amounts of um, you know where we get our oil from is 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 where the Americans fought the last two wars, not the Russians, uh, I guess. So um, you know, this is some just uh, some weird things, just like some political changes that you know. Um, people say are connected to this war, but I'm not going to talk about like some other stuff. But I'm not going to talk about that today. But that that's going to come up in the future. That's just like a prediction from me about future topics. But to understand all of this, of course, we need to kind of understand this war, and it's been um, badly covered, um, I think, in the press. I've talked about that before. So um, let's get back to this uh, this idea. What I think, what I think the Russians were doing here. Okay, so if you um, the Winter War somewhat is a good um, comparison to, I think, the initial tactic that the Russians had. You know, So if you look at a map of Europe, um, of Northern Europe, you, think, you see this thing that kind of looks like a penis with balls attached, where like Norway and Sweden are the penis, and then Finland is somewhat like the balls, right? And then there's like this uh, eastern part of that, kind of peninsula that, that that Finland belongs to, which is part of Russia, right? And then you have um, St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad, and you have the uh, what's called the Karelian Isthmus, which is this land bridge, which is really what the Winter War was fought over, because that's what people were saying. Like the Germans, if they go through Denmark and Sweden and Finland, that's how they're going to attack the Soviet Union. That's just one way to attack it. And if you control... Um, the Karelian Isthmus, you control like the port of Leningrad, which is like really important um, for um, naval warfare, um, because of course the Baltic uh, in, in in World War II uh, was was very important. I mean that's like where the Russian, uh, the German, I mean that was the Russian fleet there, but it's also where the German submarines um, were kind of, um, you know, um, you know 
basically launched and this is why Germany invaded Norway um, and of course you know Germany being because the Russians attacked first later uh, being um, kind of in an alliance with Finland um, against the Soviet Union but like um, so so if you look at if you look at Finland and you look at the initial tactics that the Russians employed to attack Finland um, what they were kind of doing um, what their idea was I think was uh, they were coming from the east obviously being Russia um, attacking from the east and they were kind of trying to traverse um, the so they were kind of obviously going to take the Karelian Isthmus that was one idea but then they also tried to cut the country you know Finland being a uh, a narrow, relatively narrow country that goes from south, north to south. Um, that we're kind of going to try to cut it um, in half, in the kind of like the smallest area, uh, the, the smallest part of the country. Um, because I mean, the northern part is, is even today is like way less, um, uh, you know, uh, um, inhabited. And the southern part is where, where most of the people live. So they were going to kind of cut the northern part off, kind of capture that, and then swing around, you know, cut the country in half, and then capture the northern part, and then swing around um, and and with a, with a, with concentrated force attack the southern part and um, take over take over the whole country, basically. And they failed. Um, they failed because they, the, the Russian army did not manage uh, to even traverse half of the area they needed to cut the country in half. Now, if you look at the map of Ukraine and how Russia attacked that, it kind of feels like they tried the same thing here. Um, it kind of feels like they tried, like in hindsight, I didn't like last time, I didn't really so much. Um, uh, see that, but like with looking at the historical perspective of the Winter War, I think it's kind of a, was a catalyst for me to maybe understanding what the Russians were doing here. Um, so Ukraine, being a country that is largely, I mean, it's much bigger than Finland, of course, but it's like um, the largest expanse is east to west, right? So I think what they try to they, they here they try to cut the country apart in half from north to south obviously they attacked in the east because that's where they you know had the you know the the donetsk like the luhansk republic and the donetsk like that's where they already had like the uh, the separatists and they had bases and, and soldiers there and but in the south they they held crimea and so they, they tried to attack from the north from Belarusia towards kiev and then from the south and i think they were trying to cut the country in half here as well and kind of, um, I think they probably expected heavy resistance in the north towards Kiev, but I think they were hoping to like quickly traverse the south and then just you know reach Kiev from both sides. And I think it's pretty clear. Um, I mean, history will um, will have to decide on this uh, in the coming years, but it seems pretty clear to me that. Both in, like, here um, in Ukraine, the Russians made the same mistake they made in Finland in the Winter War. Now, um, sorry, I need to have some, okay. Mm. I've been talking a lot today. <coughs> sorry, so my throat is a bit uh, raw. Um, 
so it is historically um, understood and and well um, uh, explained, like with 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 evidence, that um, the Russians when they invaded Finland, they thought the Finnish people would kind of or a part of the Finnish people would would see them as liberators, um, and they would um, they had like uh, so so the, the Finns when they kind of. Uh, kept destroyed like Russian military convoys and captured like the supply vehicles. They found like equipment for marching bands and flags and all this like basically parade equipment instead of like a lot of that instead of like you know equipment for a long projected war. And and so they kind of figured out that hey okay what what the Russians thought they were they were gonna be you know seen as liberators and just basically come in and don't have to fight much, maybe break a little bit of resistance, then like basically win over the hearts and minds of the people, and then it's on to parades in Helsinki, right? Um, which obviously was a huge miscalculation. Um, I feel like in the Winter War, it was a bit more understandable than today, because um, you got to remember these were communists, and the thing with kind of like the Nazis, you know, kind of like all, all of these, like, extreme political factions, they tend to believe their own propaganda. Like, you know, they smell their own farts too much or what. I don't well, What's going on? I don't know, right? Um, so the communists kind of, there was, there was a, a civil war in Finland uh, before this, uh, kind of like in every European country, you know, the communists tried to take over power, fighting, you know, the reds against the, the whites, reds being the communists, the, the whites being the the king, uh, or the, uh, in Germany, it was like the, 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 um, the Kaiser, you know, the, um, uh, the, uh, what's, what, what's the word uh, the emperor um so kind of like the monarch you know the, the the monarch faction those were the whites and the same in russia you know the whites against the reds in in the revolution and they they, they were kind of hoping that the finnish communists would support them um or at least i think the the minimum hope from stalin was that um, finland which at the time was like a lot of european countries politically divided would fall apart politically, right? The communists always had this thing like that democracy is weak because there's all these um, competing factions and they're fighting in parliament all the time. And how can you get like a, a strong country when that's going? It's the same that the, that's actually what the fascists and the communists have in common. That's that's what they always thought about democracy. Um, when so they thought like this is the, the Stalin probably thought this is gonna splinter, right? The the, the the, the political unity of Finland's going to splinter and then we're going to come in and some people are going to see us as liberators and then we're going to take over the country and liberate the workers and everything's going to be fine. Now, um, that obviously didn't happen. Um, what happened is when the Soviet Union attacked Finland, it unified all the political factions and they, they were like, oh, we're gonna, <laughs> the Russians are fucking attacking. Uh, we're going to you know set aside our differences and, and fight them to the bone. And kind of the same thing, I think, the, the Russians made the same mistake twice. Like a hundred years later, almost, uh, they made the same mistake. I, I think it's kind of obvious. We also see now from some stuff that's been found in, like, in, in Ukraine, uh, in Russian convoys, that they were kind of expecting the same thing. Um, they were, um, you know, kind of thought, I think, the east of uh, Ukraine would, would see them as liberators. 
and would welcome them with open arms, which is also why, you know, lots of military analysts have said this now, um, which is why they were kind of lining up their tanks and their supply trains in a way where, where they, you know, they were like, they were lining them up basically in hostile territory, um, but like strategic, like, no, tactically, sorry, um, tactically thinking they were safe because they thought they were in an area where people would not attack them. Um, and that turned out to be a huge mistake. Um, so, you know, that, that is why they had a lot of losses, kind of just like the Soviet army had a lot of losses uh, in the Winter War. And then another parallel that I think is pretty clear is that there was bad preparation. There's this famous um, thing from the Winter War where um, these... Um, so they captured, like, Russian... So the Finns are like capturing Russian military convoys, right? And then they find, like, marching band equipment, of course, and they're kind of laughing at that. But then there's also, like, there's this favorite, famous picture that's also in the... Yeah, I linked the Wikipedia article to the Winter War um, in the show notes, private citizen or press, if you want to read a bit more into this. There's this famous picture that I remember from, from school book, I think, where, like, there, there's, like, Finnish officers... And they're sitting like in front of this, the, the the flags. They captured like this huge Stalin flag, and then they re have a huge pile of, of of skiing manuals, where the Russians brought skiing manuals. Which obviously, if you're attacking Finland in the winter, um, you know your soldiers. I mean, they they're bringing skis, right? They sh they should know how to ski, right? You can't expect that you that you can learn how to ski with a fucking manual in the middle of a war. So they were because they were kind of ex expecting to be welcomed. This led to other logistical errors and just preparation errors that their, their, their soldiers were just ill prepared. And we're seeing a lot with that um, in Ukraine now, apparently as well. Where like Russian um, soldiers are just like, ill informed; they don't know what's going on there. They don't coordinate very well, which is something that happened in the Winter War as well. Um, and they're just not well prepared. Um, because you know their commanders were, were were aiming for a different situation, I think. Um, and by the way, I find this hilarious, kind of like as as far as you can find war hilarious. But I'm a historian, so uh, we're we're quite sanguine about these things, and we sometimes find these things hilarious. Um, that they kind of made the same mistake twice, especially when you think like, um, if you think about like militaries and their propaganda. Um, the thing that always stands out, at least to me, if, you, if you're thinking about militaries that 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 give this, um, I have this idea or perpetuate this idea of coming in as as liberators and being seen as liberators, it's always like the Americans, right? It's the the American army, they're always the liberators, um, and 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 like that's what the propaganda always says, right? When they when they went into Iraq, like we're the liberators, and the Iraqi people are really seeing us as as you know the the real Iraqi people, not like the the thugs in like Saddam's corrupt uh, criminal military, or whatever, whatever that even means. Um, like the real people see us as liberators, and this obviously comes from World War Two, where to some extent, you know, in Germany, except you know that was kind of true. Like a lot of Germans, like by the end of the war, saw the Americans liberated. Mm. Also in contrast, because of the Russians, because the Russian army was behaving um, so horribly. Um, but you never see the American army, like, smell their own farts, right? They have that as propaganda, but it doesn't infiltrate the minds of the 
military strategic like command they're not like believing that right so the americans were arming their comp like they were defending their compounds in iraq and afghanistan like even while they were saying we're really the liberators and the real people kind of are welcoming us they knew that there was resistance and they were not gonna like you know park their equipment somewhere where it could have been easily attacked right so they they never fell for this kind of um you know by by hoping for having wishful thinking really um which is something that usually politicians you know happens to politicians um but generally not to generals who plan an invasion um but i mean the russian army seems to be prone for this and we have we have seen this now twice in a hundred years with a very different army right i mean the the Soviet army in '39 is very different from the um, Russian army in 2022. Ideologically, um, from the organizational structure, um, I mean, especially because the Soviet army, I mean, even if you see, which it is, like if you see the current Russian army as a continuation of the Red Army, the Soviet army, um, the Soviet army changed massively, uh, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and even during World War II, like they, they also changed massively. Stalin had a huge reform of the army based on the what he saw as a bad performance, especially in the first few months of the Winter War. Um, so yeah, so there there seem to be there seem to be similarities here, um, which I find interesting. As a historian, you always find like parallels like that very interesting, and I think that kind of explains why the Russians failed in the initial attack. Um, I still think they weren't executing what people like to call a, a blitzkrieg here. Um, largely, I mean, first of all, the, the term blitzkrieg is like, I mean, it's a very placative term and it's it works well in the Sabaton song, but it's not really a good military term. Like, if you military uh, historian, I'm not, but, you know, um, obviously, as a historian, you always, um, wars are very important because they're very important historic events. And so, you you know, you know I did a lot about the Third, third Reich and stuff. And um, something that I've just recently been kind of, I knew this and I've, I've read about this in, in university, but I've, you know how it is, you kind of forget things and then you something comes up and then you do more research and then you kind of remember all these things so i i, I it all came back to me like that uh, in reading about this that you know the blitzkrieg is not a military term it is a journalist invented that term i think pretty much times magazine popularized it um of course in response to the german attack on poland and the invasion and how quickly um germany managed to overthrow poland um but it is important to state that the German, the German army, um, which you know, the German army in the in the Third, Third Reich, so Hitler's Hitler's army, the Wehrmacht, um, is a pretty much direct continuation of the Prussian army, right? In the um, in the tradition of Frederick the Great, and you know, the the same army that Bismarck used to um, unify Germany um, by attacking Denmark and France. And, and waging those wars. And um, the, th the tactic that people like to call Blitzkrieg um, is more 
if you, if you want to use a more scientifically his, histori- historical term, something that historic scientists use, um, in, in German you call this, uh, it's usually called Preußisch Deutscher Bewegungskrieg, which loosely translates to Prussian German because, you know, Germany is not only Prussia. And when we're talking about, you know, the, the wars in um, 1870-71, stuff like that, we're not talking, Germany doesn't exist yet. It was founded after those wars. So that's why it's the it's like because you know there was a Bavarian army and there was a Saxon army and you know all these German kingdoms had all these armies but like the Prussian mode of warfare because Bismarck was Prussian and because Prussia um, rose to prominence in Germany and then that enabled the Prussians to kind of unify Germany um, like their way of waging war basically took over and became the German way of waging war. Um, which was was you know the German army tried to use in World War One, which was not very successful, because World War One was a war that was not very conducive um, to this way of war, which I can get into a little bit. But then in World War Two, it became the mode of which by which the Wehrmacht um, executed its invasions of other countries, which is where this term Blitzkrieg comes from. Um, there's a historian called Robert M. Santino who calls this the German way of war. And basically the idea is generally um, that you have, um, and this started with, we're talking initially, the Prussian army, we're talking like um, cavalry, we're talking horses, but that then got transplanted to once tanks became, um, you know, once tank warfare grew out of World War One, this this mode of, of, of waging war got, transplanted from horses to tanks but basically what you're trying to do is um you're trying to attack a, like hope like you have a front right you try to attack like a weak point in the front preferably with like a mass push so you concentrate your forces you try to punch through like a, um the front in an area like with concentrated force and maybe by you know by by taking into account a lot of casualties, and then you punch through, and you have mobile forces that just with speed basically um, leave the front behind and 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 capture go go behind the lines, go behind enemy territory, and then you're trying you're not doing like a front warfare right where you're trying to push the front um, back against the enemy. You're trying to pinch holes into it and then surround the enemy and then like create pockets where you can where you can capture them. And so that's one aspect of it. It's like you, you're trying to be highly mobile. The other aspect is you, you try to force something um, which in German is called Vernichtungsschlacht, which is kind of like a decisive battle. Um, you're trying to be very quick with this, quick and forceful. And you don't want to get into protected wars. You kind of want to force the enemy to commit to a decisive battle, which hopefully you can win, right? Because you're faster and you're trying to, you're out outmaneuvering the enemy. The idea is that, you know, this is all something like, you know, Clausewitz kind of came up with a lot of this. Um, you're kind of like trying to win like that decisive web battle because you, you're, you have the element of surprise on your side or whatever. Um, and part of this is of this type of warfare specifically that you're recognized. This is something that Prussian politicians always recognized. Um, Bismarck, uh, when talking about war, always talked about like it's like a game of dice. It's like the ultimate dice throw. It's like very risky, 
um, you basically risk it for the biscuit kind of is what you're trying to do. And and with that, with accepting this comes a mode of warfare where you, ex where you accept risk. And you're like, you're doing this, like you're punching through the front. And if you then see what you think is kind of an opportunity, you seize it. Um, even though um, uh, you might not even like see through the situation completely, you, you're not ste stepping back, going grand strategy, going, oh, what, what does this lead to? You're like, we're moving, the tanks are moving, we see an opportunity and we seize that opportunity. We hope that like with with basically um uh you know uh what um what's what's the term I'm I'm thinking of? Um um you know like um uh fate favors the, the bold, right? You're you're trying to kind of be bold and 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 maybe even like rattle the enemy with that, like be quicker than them. You might not even have the decisive power advantage, but because you're seizing the opportunity, you might get them on the defensive and then like win by basically for sheer force of willpower. Like if you, um, I mean, I, I like Sabaton, so I go back to that. Like if, if you know the Sabaton song, Ghost Division, by which they open almost every concert with it. Um, that's about uh, Rommel's um, Panzer Corps, right? And when they, especially when they attacked France, um, they were ter termed the um the the uh was a geister the uh is that, oh god was it ghost division what's the what's the german term um it's not battalion is it um oh my god what were they what were they named what was the german nickname gespenster division i ah, yes, the you know the, the ghost division basically because a lot of the time the German military high command, the Wehrmacht, um, the Oberkommando, um, didn't know, didn't even know where like fucking Rommel's division was because he would like, so you have a plan, you got like, you're like, okay, we have this tank battalion and your goal is like to capture that, that area, right? And, and, and he would attack that and he would kind of see, oh, we're overwhelming those guys and he would just keep going even though that was not his, um, like, his 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 orders were not specifically that, but he saw like I can capture fifty more kilometers today, and I'm just going to do it, and they would just like seize the opportunity, even though like the supply train wasn't even like set up and everything. They would just risk it. Like if they'd run into opposition significant, then they would have been outmaneuvered. They, you know the opposition had better supplies. They, you know they would have lost that. But like especially in France, um, this kind of mode of warfare worked very well for the Germans. And so like the high command high command often didn't know where Rommel was because he was already ahead. And like, you know, um and and this kind of mode of warfare is what um what enabled the successes that, you know, especially in Poland, um, then got termed Blitzkrieg. Um it's a very risky way to wage war, right? There there's huge of huge casualties um attached to this and if you're risking it all the time um, it can go wrong and you can see it worked very well in poland and in france and it failed miserably uh in the soviet union and this is a thing also um i recently read i think i talked about this in a previous episode but like i read like a thing from a historian where it says you basically never know how wars are gonna you know people always in in the time frame when the war is going on, 
um, they always predict the wrong winner, right? So if you take World War II and if you take the German uh, invasions, um, the one that was everybody predicted was Poland. Like everybody was like, yeah, Germany's going to completely crush them. It's going to be fast war. That that worked. Um, but when Hitler tried to do the same with France, everybody said, this is never going to work. He's going to lose this. This is a disaster. And everybody was surprised when, when suddenly the same kind of mode of attack again worked in France. Um, and so, so people predicted that one wrong. When then, when Hitler then invaded the Soviet Union, everybody because they saw France, he's like, okay, he's won against Poland. We kind of take that for granted. He he fucking f- for some reason managed to just win against France very quickly. So he's he's gonna win against the Russians. Um, you know their their army's not as well equipped and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, um, as you know, uh, it didn't work out that way. The Russians managed to actually blunt that assault long enough um, to then just with massive manpower gain the upper hand and you know over years basically push the Germans back and basically win Second World War um, I'm, 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 I'm to this day I'm very certain that like even without the American intervention and even without D-Day the Russians alone would have won World War II it would have probably taken a few more like, there would have been a lot more casualties and it would have taken a lot longer um, and a lot more people would have died because, like, Hitler would have probably have gassed a lot more, um, you know, um, Jewish people and, 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 you know, all the other people he, he, he murdered, you know, like gay people, homosexuals, uh, you know, handicapped people, all that stuff. Um, but, you know, I think um, the Russians still would have, would have won that. Um, so... What I'm trying to say here is that this way to wage war is a specifically very German way to wage war. And historically speaking, the Russian way to wage war has always been the exact opposite. The Russians, um, you know, in World War II and earlier, um, the way they waged war um, was this front war. They would just, like, push the front. You know, they, they wouldn't, especially they wouldn't have these daring maneuvers um, in the Soviet army, if you did something like Rommel and they didn't know where you were for like a week, you'd come back and you'd get shot probably. Like some commissar would probably shoot you uh, because um, this is just not how the Soviet army worked. The Soviet army was like massed artillery and then they would just bombard the area they wanted to capture like for sometimes weeks, fucking destroy everything. Um, and then move in with force, always with force, sometimes under horrendous casualties. Um, you know, the the tank battle of Kursk is a very good um, example of this, where like the um, the German side had a lot fewer tanks, uh, better equipped tanks in strategic um, and tactical positions that were a lot better, and the Russians were just managed to just by just pure force and it's where that's where this tank doctrine i talked about this in the early episode as well of the russians where they just built more tanks right they just built four tanks for every western tank and they just completely um assume that those tanks will get destroyed and the people inside them will horribly die um and they just calculate that like that's that was one of the is whenever i read about this in history is this always one of the things that i abhor um about um, communism, where I feel like communism was even like harsher towards its own people than even like Nazis and fascism, 
where even the Nazis, they kind of tried to keep their soldiers alive, where the, the Russians, they just didn't fucking care. Um, you know, when there was warfare, trench warfare, and didn't have enough rifles, they just gave every third man a rifle. And, you know, it was just, uh, it's just like a meat grinder. And, and the Russian armies always embraced this. So, and specifically because I think um, the current Russian army is like a continuation of all of that. There was no hard cut. Not like in Germany, where, where like the Wehrmacht for, I mean, it wasn't like a lot of Wehrmacht officers ended up in the Bundeswehr and stuff like that. But, you know, um, there was a much harder cut and a much bigger change in military tradition um, than in Russia, where there, I guess, there really wasn't any. So, like, I don't think... I find it inconceivable that Putin all of a sudden or his generals would, would go for, you know, uh, a Prussian-German maneuver war, as it's always as also called, right? You know, like, this quick... Um, this this high risk, high reward way of quickly like and they're not kitted out for that either. Like they don't have the 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 the, the Soviet or said you know the Soviet army, but like the Russian army is not built for that. It's like the the equipment's not built for that. Um, the 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 unit structures are not built for that. Um, and I don't think they like. So that moving, like, massing the tanks and, like, you know, parking them in, like, in these... That is just not something you do when you when you wage this kind of war, right? They would have just thrown everything into the country as quickly as possible, which has its own problems. You know, you have problems with, like, supply lines and something the Wehrmacht always struggled with. Um, but, like, they just didn't... They, their whole poise in this conflict um, isn't doesn't doesn't look like that i mean for example they have the one of the big like really surprising things about for me as somebody who's you know never was in the military whose only knowledge about all of this stuff comes from studying history and playing strategy games um a huge surprise to me is that the russians had massive for for this whole war as far as i can tell they've had massive aerial superiority the ukrainian air force is basically non-existent like after the first few days, um, it was basically non-existent. I mean, they have drones and stuff, and they they have success with anti-air, and then, you know they get good. They've gotten good weapons and stuff from the from the West, especially from the Americans. Very good anti-air weapons, and they're good at like shooting down Russian planes. But the Russians have massive air superiority. They've never used this. Like they've never used this, um, you know, land, air, sea doctrine. That that the U.S. the U.S. military is basing all of their attacks on, right? If you look at all the wars since Vietnam um, that the U.S. military has waged, like getting air superiority is like almost always the first step, right? In if you look at the Kosovo War, um, they took out anti-air defenses in some cases with like special ops and stuff like that, and then they had massive air superiority and they just wrote that to victory uh same with iraq um you know the the one of the reasons they just won basically won both of those wars was was that and the russians they don't they have ne not capitalized on that and that would be like one of the key factors if you were using some kind of like prussian maneuver war tactics today um i feel 
right? You, you, you get air superiority first. I mean, even the Nazis in World War II did that. They they recognized, you know, the power of an air force and of air superiority very early on. Um, I mean, they always struggled having enough planes and stuff, but the Russians certainly don't have that problem. So, I don't know. It's all, it's, it's all to me, it all looks like they were trying... Um, trying to just move in and be welcomed and didn't have a plan B and obviously made massive massive mistakes there and what they're doing now is more of a, like a typical Russian um, war warfare right they didn't they didn't try to do a blitzkrieg attack failed and now settle back to that this is plan B I think that they never had a plan B. They tried to just march in, like in the Winter War. Um, that failed. And now they're just doing what they always do, which is kind of their plan B now. But I don't think they planned that because um, their whole poise of the attack was also not set up to go to plan B, which is, you know, which they're doing now, which is, you know, the massive bombardment. This is why they're bombarding cities like Mariupol and just destroying it completely, um, trying to just massively destroy any opposition with you know, massed attacks and just ignoring casualties. Obviously, another parallel to the winter was just the, the like, for example, the tank tactics, where, of course, of, of course, in the winter war, they didn't have drones, um, but, you know, they can't get off the roads pretty much in Ukraine because of the conditions of the mud and stuff, which the Russian army should have foreseen, really. Um, but obviously didn't like the tires, you know, on, on, on some trucks, the tires weren't, didn't have enough maintenance. So obviously they didn't, they didn't see that. And the same happened in the, in the winter war. It, there wasn't mud. There was just trees. Like in the winter war, the Russian armored vehicles couldn't get off the roads because the Finnish trees are so thick that you just can't go, you know, driving the tanks through the forests. Um, so the Finnish were just sitting in the forest on the side of the road and attacking Russian convoys, pretty much like the Ukrainians are doing now with drones, where you basically, um, you attack the, you have a convoy, you attack the, the tank in the front, you attack, or I think you start in the back, actually, you attack the tank in the back, then you blow up a tank in the front, then the whole column can't move, they can't get out of the way because they can't get into the trees, and then you, you cut them. I think there's like a word for it, like a Finnish word where it's like cutting wood or something. You kind of cut the convoy into little pieces and then you attack them piecemeal. You you like basically um, get get stuck in, make, um, you know, just basically keep shooting on them so that they can't consolidate and can't, you know, turn this in a real into a real defensive position. And then uh, you, you, you cut them apart and then you have one big like group because the Finnish always they never had enough soldiers um, they, they have one concentrated group and that just goes and kills these little uh, individual pockets and by that you can destroy a largely superior force with a smaller force by just being smart and using the environment and the Russians were not prepared for this they were not good at in the winter war to communicate you know the same seems to be um the reason in in Ukraine, and they've seen too largely. I think with the okay, we're giving up our, our attack on the north on Kiev. I think they recognize that, and now they're just settling in for a very long protected war, protracted war in the east, where they just slowly push the front forward, like the Russian army always does. Um, now we get to the point where I think people um, misanalyze the winter war. Um, so people who don't 
who haven't looked at this in detail, um, I think see the Winter War as uh, the Soviet Union tried to attack Finland, which was a much smaller military, much less prepared, and they, by like being smart and willpower and just being like tough as nails, um, won against the Soviet army. Now that's not true. They didn't win. Um, what they did is they fought the Soviet Union into a settlement, right? They 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 fought long enough so that the government could get a peace settlement which wasn't too bad for Finland. It wasn't good. They gave up territory. Um, but they basically held out so long uh, to get this peace treaty on terms that were as good as, you know, the, 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 the president of Finland when he signed this was like, I think he said something like, my hand's gonna, if I sign this, my hand's gonna just rot off or something like that um, because he just fucking hated signing that. But like, um, it was a very favorable, very favorable terms, especially for such a small country that realistically had no chance to win against the Soviet uh, army, which is what Mannerheim, um, the the commander of the Finnish army, uh, you know, the cross of Mannerheim is named after him, um, famous Finnish war hero, um, said from the beginning, he said, we don't have any chance. Basically, what the Finnish did in the Winter War was bluff. Um, you know, Mannerheim had a very he used... Um, not propaganda. That's what ha is happening now in Ukraine. He used kind of the absence of propaganda to kind of bluff the Russians. You know, I mean, he had propaganda things like the Mannerheim line, right? And and um, holding the Mannerheim line, and there were several lines. And but but basically, what they did. So if you look at the end of the Winter War, um, historians today estimate that had the peace treaty not been signed. Um, the Finnish army would have collapsed inside of three weeks. And what Mannerheim did was, by by inflicting horrendous losses on his own forces, um, he um, uh, fooled the Russians into thinking that the Finnish army would break. And Stalin bought that. And Stalin was like, I'm losing. Like, he, I mean, the Russians lost a lot of equipment. They lost a lot of men. I think a parallel, another parallel is that um, by the end of the Winter War, Finland had more tanks than it started the war with because they captured so many Russian tanks, kind of like the Ukrainians are doing right now. Um, so, yeah, um, they had some successes, but they were losing, and they were a much smaller army, and the Russian losses didn't really matter because the Russia, Russia had just such a longer bigger bigger army um and they could have held on much longer and had stalin known that he was so close to winning he would have just i think easily committed however many thousand men would have had to die however many hundreds of tanks would have been destroyed um you know people without skis that are just like scrawling to the snow he wouldn't have cared um but because Mannerheim prevented very smartly especially prevented journalists from figuring out was what was going on and foreign journalists from going into Finland and, you know, going to the front and figuring out, hey, uh, looking at the morale uh, that was getting low, um, how many soldiers the the uh, Finnish were losing, how many equipment they were losing. Um, had, had that been reported, the Russians would have figured ver out very quickly that Finland couldn't have won this and, and wasn't really holding out, was just, Mannheim was just bluffing, basically. And the settlement would have never happened and Stalin would have just completely invaded Finland. Um, and if you know that 
And if you transplant that on Ukraine today, which is a very different kind of war, because basically what we're happening now, uh, the winter war, the Finnish could bluff the Russians because there was no, I mean, there was propaganda, but there was no reporting. There was no smartphone footage from the front, which we have now. Uh, Ukraine is very different. Ukraine is a propaganda war where the Ukrainians are doing a fantastic job of convincing the world that they're winning, even though they're not and they can't. Um, but, you know, every little victory, we've destroyed this tank. Look at this tank. It's being towed by a tractor. Look at this cute girl. She's been fighting the Russian invaders for like eight years and she, she and her boyfriend are riding around in this armored car that they built themselves and they're shooting Russians in the face. Um I look at how good we are using these fucking N laws we got from the uh, the Americans or whatever. Um, they're doing a very good job in this uh, in this propaganda one. The Russians are doing a very bad job, uh, but I think that's because the Russians don't need it. They don't need propaganda. I think Putin knows that he's a pariah now forever, like, and the Russians will be a pariah state to the West to everybody f- for ages now. Um, so he knows that. Um, so he doesn't care. He doesn't care about the propaganda. He doesn't need the propaganda. He just needs it towards his own people, right? He just needs to hold his regime up um, because he knows that the army will, will stand because of the Russian army and the fucking, I don't know, uh, either patriotic, corrupt, or like he'll get shot if you do the wrong thing. So um, he knows that probably that his, or he thinks that his regime is strong enough and he can hold this. And what the world thinks, he doesn't care. Whereas Ukraine is doing a great job um, another difference here is that the Finns uh, didn't get any international help, right? Everybody was like, you know, well, thoughts and prayers for Finland, but, you know, okay, it's just Finland. We got bigger fish to fry. The Germans are are waging a war. Uh, they're uh, more of a problem. Whereas, you know, the Ukrainians actually get lots of support, um, soldiers, uh, massive equipment. But that doesn't change the fact that what we're not seeing because they're winning the propaganda battle is the same thing that must have happened must be happening to the Ukrainian army right now that was happening to the Finnish army it doesn't matter how many how many men the Russians lose they have the bigger army and the Ukrainians are losing men every day as well like just like the Finnish we're losing people every day and um, I don't think Putin's going to fall for the same thing that 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 Stalin fell for, um, because I mean, while there's propaganda, and and you and me, if we're reading our media, you know, you might be in the UK, might be reading the BBC. I'm reading like Tagesschau, whatever, uh, and you know, you're in the US, you're reading like CNN or seeing CNN, whatever. That's what you're getting. That's what you're inundated with. And you might, you know, probably not, if you listen to this show, you're probably not believing that. And you probably heard me mention Bernays enough that you go like, okay, that's obvious propaganda. And, you know, especially in wartime, I'm not believing anything. Like, all of this is, like, skewed in some way. Um, but, like, we might be believe, believe this because we're inundated with this and Ukrainian are doing an exemplary job uh, in wartime propaganda here. First of all, Putin doesn't care. Secondly, he's probably got better information sources, right? Anybody with a intelligence service, like you know the the GRU or whatever, or like you know the the NSA, um, the GCHQ, they satellites. They they know exactly what's going on, right? He he probably knows very well um, 
what the situation is like. Um, and he'll be uh, focusing on that. And that's something they didn't have, obviously, in 1939 in the Winter War. And Stalin didn't have that. Um, right? So back in the day, you could kind of, you know, the Russians would, would, would attack the Mannheim line and then fail. And they would, the Russian commanders would get the idea um, that, 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 that the Finnish were kind of unshakable, even though they weren't. Today you, 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 today you can see behind the lines and you can see that the equipment is running out and their bullets are running out. Um, so I don't think that that's going to be the same outcome. I think, as I said before, if there's not going to be regime change, if there's no change within Russia, um, and God beware, I hope NATO is not so stupid to start World War III over this, if that's not happening either, then I think the Russians will probably not, you know, they're not capture the whole country, I guess, but they're like, you know, slowly advance that front as long as they want to and as long as they're willing to pay the price in equipment and 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 manpower um and and you know the 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 propaganda stuff is not gonna not gonna change that significantly i think i mean they're making a lot of mistakes just like you know i mean big the big thing in the in the winter war was that the russians had they for example used the prussian maneuver warfare they actually broke through the Mannheim line in many 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 places uh, but failed to capitalize because the Russian army doesn't work like that, right? The German army, the Prussian army, or the Wehrmacht would have gone, we're broken through, and the individual commanders had enough, like, leeway in their decisions that they could have gone, like, okay, yeah, um, we're seizing this opportunity, and we're punching through, and we're breaking this line, and we're taking it apart. Whereas the Russians, when they punch through that hole, they're like, they stop. And the general is like, I can't, like, or the colonel, whoever's in command, basically needs to start talking to Moscow to ask Stalin uh, in person in some cases if they were, like, allowed to, like, fucking break through. And by the time they got, like, whoever, whatever commissar for for military affairs somewhere else uh, was going to sign off on this, by the time they got that, the opportunity was long gone and the Finnish had regrouped uh, and you know and, and that is why the Russians also didn't have you know um, basically lost a lot of opportunities in the um, in the winter one I think you can see signs of this in this conflict as well um, and I think they're probably still operating in the same way but in the end the way the Russian army works and they they just that kind of um Blow everything down. It doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, it's a very inhumane way to wage war, of course. Like both um, against you know towards your own soldiers as well as you know civilians and 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 other people. I mean, that's kind of why stuff like I I think uh, stuff like Bucha happens um, because you know they occupy a town and then there's civilians there, but they're like in a situation where like basically. Ukraine has an- handed out uh, AK-74s to everybody uh, who could grab one, and they're like the government is actively advocating like guerrilla warfare, and you're like a Russian soldier soldier sitting on some like armored vehicle, and a guy steps out in the street because he was sitting in a basement for like two weeks and is dying of thirst, and he's to go out, and they just mow them down because they're like. I don't, we don't know what's happening here like you know um 
they don't they don't they want to attack us um that's why you know they're using fucking flechettes uh ammunition and, and and stuff like that because they the russian way of warfare you know largely i think owning to like the stalin regime and the communists and how they i mean it wasn't only stalin and this is how, how lenin thought about these things as well <laughs> you know even trotsky um it was very inhumane um and it's very different than let's say you know the american army you know i mean i've talked about how i i i, I think the um invasion of iraq uh the last one by 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 the u.s u.s military was as illegal if you want to call it that which i think is stupid as as like this invasion um but it was a very different way to wage war right it's not it was it wasn't as 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 ruthless and for the i mean for for the simple fact also that you know uh, like i think there's two differences the the u.s army or the u.s military was always very concerned about their soldiers and their equipment first of all and you know they've got a they've got a a, a reputation to uphold right they have they have propaganda to uphold they can't just go like willy-nilly shoot civilians because they uphold this uh, myth that they're the good guys which i personally find ludicrous because it's war and you're shooting people um, so you're by definition a bad guy. You're a murderer. You're pre-meditating uh, to kill somebody. In any other context, you would be a murderer and in jail and a bad person. Um, but I've I've talked about this last episode. Um, but you know, um, so so everybody's the bad guys. But like they have this 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 reputation to uphold, which the Russians just don't. They don't just they don't give a fuck. Um, I think their military leadership. I think I think Putin doesn't you know they they know that they are now the pariah and they don't they will never get this back and they don't care for them this is just a political tool and i I don't know about the inter- individual soldiers what what they think i just i couldn't begin um be, begin to guess but yeah so that's that's um what i think i think so i think the outcome um pretty much i mean i've, I've thought a lot about this a lot more since uh since I last talked about this, but I think um, I'm still with the same kind of outcome, right? I, I think this will just go on for years unless something happens. And I think that change is pretty much only going to come from inside Russia. Um, you know, I'm not ruling out that, like, um, sanctions and just international um, pressure will eventually force this but it's still it's got to come from from within right it's got to basically it's not like nato's gonna make worse sanctions and putin's gonna say no this is too bad um i'm gonna stop this right the, the basically the situation within russia has got to be so bad that like he loses support but i think that's a that might be a matter of centuries like if you look at um I said decades, sorry, not cent- certainly not centuries, no, <laughs> decades. Um, if you look at how long it like took, I, I talked about this before, uh, in the Vietnam War, in a much more open democratic society for like the people saying we don't want this war um, to, to become, get the minority and finally actually, f- 
you know, force enough change uh, politically that, that that the war would be stopped. How long that took, and if you took how long it, uh, look at how long it. I mean, this was the Cold War, but like how bad it needed to get for the population of the Soviet Union for that to fall apart, right? To to crack basically in Eastern Germany, and people. I mean, as soon as somebody started going, this is we're not gonna have this. Uh, this is shit. Like it kicked off this whole avalanche of everybody doing that, and then then the Soviet Union was history. But like to get to that point, to build up all that snow so that the avalanche could start basically to stay within the metaphor, uh, it took took it took ages, took took um, decades. Um, so I I have a very bad feeling about this. Uh, I, I think this is gonna take a lot longer than a lot of people think. On the other hand, um, that is as bad as that is for anybody who's in the Russian army or anybody who's in Ukraine. Um, I think it's vastly preferable to the um, alternative, which I think is, is open warfare in some way. I don't know by the if the Germans are crazy enough to actually, uh, you know, send tanks. And I'm not talking about the like. Um, mobile anti-aircraft platforms that the, the German used things as a tank. I'm talking, you know, main battle tanks. I'm talking Leopard 2. Um, right, if they're not doing that, which would be a mass mistake, or NATO doing something really stupid, um, I, I think that would be much worse. You know, that that would just escalate everything. It, it would massively escalate. I mean, this was, even if we did not have a nuclear war, it, it would escalate through all of Europe. Um, you know, the other countries would get it. Just, it would be a massive disaster. Right? It, I think it would spiral out of control to World War Three, and I, I don't think we want that. I think that would be even worse. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, I think. Uh, I think this war. I mean, the other way this war could end would would be like a ceasefire and a, and a treaty. Uh, where you can, I've talked about this before as well. Where you can, you can give up some of their territory. Um, although I think that is like you know, again in comparison to the Winter War, it's a lot less likely. I think the the, the just the Ukrainian political climate, um, you know, Zelensky and their government, and and the support that they have makes that less less a lot less likely. Um, also due to the propaganda, because I mean that is a. Um, uh, a definite effect of the, the propaganda that's having that it's having not only outside the country but also inside the country, and also I think also um, notwithstanding the propaganda, I think there's a very big nationalist movement inside Ukraine that was there even before the initial, uh, you know, eight years ago the initial start of the war and invasion. I think that was there even before that, um, and. Um, yeah. Another factor that's maybe a bit of a change is, I think, if a bit of a contrast to the Winter War also, as the last point I'm going to get into, just occurred to me, is that I think, I mean, the Finnish army was, was, was woefully unprepared for this war, and they, they acquitted themselves. Um, one of the kind of like miracles of the Winter War is like how well the uh, Finnish army managed to fight this war, even though they were so unprepared and, and, and badly trained and, and, and in some cases. Um 
but they did that very well. Whereas the Ukrainian army is, um, you know, I, I didn't know this either, but it makes complete sense. And I read a lot about the Ukrainian army in the last like two months. Um, is a lot more prepared, <laughs> which makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because this war has been going on for eight years. They got their ass handed to them in 2014 by the Russians, um, at which point they completely changed uh, the, the, the whole army. Like they completely overhauled the whole army, the way how they do things. And they prepared and they were much better prepared. I think they were still unprepared for this invasion happening at this very point in time. But once that happened, um, they could definitely, um, um, you know, look, uh, reach for a, you know, a, uh, a much better prepared core of officers and soldiers than they had eight years earlier um, because they, they used those eight years for training and, 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 you know, stuff like that. Um, so that, that might, you know, that might also have been a factor why, why the Russian um, plan didn't go up. But I think the general point was just the Russians for some reason that I will never understand because I'm, my whole life is basically being opposed to propaganda. Um, they just believed that the Ukrainians would, like they would, it's like, it was almost like a parallel um, universe kind of thing where they, 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 they thought they lived in a universe where the Ukrainians would welcome them after eight years of already being in the war, which is to me is, un, is not understandable. It just no. I mean, I don't. I don't know that much about Ukrainians and, and the way they think about their country. I've admitted this before, um, but like in any case, that is just like if you like. I don't know. You're you're waging a low level war for eight years, and you've kind of uh, stealthily, uh, but obviously invaded parts of a country. I don't know. I mean, the the Germans. <laughs> the Germans are the most unnationalistic people probably now these days because of just the whole training in schools and stuff, you know, the whole reaction to fascism and the Nazis. But like, if the French went across the border and, you know, took part of the Ruhr area and, and pretended there was like a referendum, whatever, but were basically sending soldiers in that, that were speaking French, but just not have a French flag on the uniform. And that was going on for eight years. I think even like the German public would like <laughs> rally behind like their army. And when the French then invaded, that nobody would have thought, oh, well, we'll welcome the French. Like, you know, they'll just carry warm baguettes over the border. And we're like, yeah, um, French food so much better than German food anyway. Just come in. Um, so um, I feel... I don't, I don't, I don't understand where they were coming from. Anyway, so that's my take. Um, that I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it at that, unless something, um, something really interesting happens in this war. I think it's gonna be low level like this now for years. Um, but we'll see. You know, as as that historian said, nobody ever predicts wars correctly. Basically, so <laughs> who knows? Uh, the Ukrainian could just like win this. That would be that would be a. Um, that would be an amazing Sabbath song, by the way. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, let's let's move on then. Let's talk a little bit about feedback. We had we haven't done that last episode, so it's it's about time. And I got some feedback, so um, let's get into that. We had Steve B. Uh, was responding on the forum to episode uh, 
113 Lex Draconis. This was the last episode about Drachenlord, the German YouTuber. And um, I was talking in the episode about the, the defense of his lawyer who said, you know, the guy basically told everybody, if you come to my house, I'm going to hit you in the face. And if people then turn up, uh, they can't basically object um, if he hits them in, 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 in the face. So that's how he got off at least one charge of aggravated assault. To which Steve B said, well, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> neither am I, and only ever been in Germany on vacation, but I can understand that. It's not like he said he would go to the house and hurt them. He actually warned them that, that if they invaded his space, he would potentially hurt them. That put the invader in control of whatever they would potentially of whether they would potentially get hurt or not. So if they showed up at his house, they were already pre-warned, and it sounds like the event went down as advertised. True, uh, but like, you know, um, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but generally I don't know how, I think Steve is from Canada, um, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't rem don't know how laws work in Canada, but in Germany, um, the fact that you are pre-warned of something or that somebody... Um, uh, announces that they will commit a crime against you doesn't help them off the crime. Like that doesn't help them get off. The 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 operative point is did they commit a crime or not? Um, so uh, if uh, you know if if I will live in Düsseldorf, people in Düsseldorf are horrendous drivers, and and they're very very quick to anger. So if if I, uh, you know, if I uh, have a altercation on the road with somebody, you know, and I, I step out of my car, uh, and 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 the guy steps out of his car, and we yell, yell at each other, and I say, you know, uh, if you don't shut up, I'm going to take my uh, flashlight. I'm going to hit you over the head, which is what Brownlord did. He hit somebody with a flashlight. Um, and then the guy, uh, or like if you come and 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 touch me then i'm gonna hit you with a flashlight and then the guy comes and just like pushes me away and i hit him over the head with a flashlight that is aggravated assault like the fact that um i told him i would do this or the fact that he was in control and he kind of caused it doesn't matter um attacking somebody with the intent of doing serious harm to them is like assault and that's a crime um you know there there are and we're going to get into that because uh, Steve's feedback is not complete. There are um, circumstances where you will get off that. But it's always like you committed this crime and then, you know, obviously like anything in law, the, the judge will go, well, we're going to have to weigh that against what else happens. So, for example, if somebody breaks into my home with a gun and I happen to have a, a heavy uh, flashlight in my hand and he points a gun at me and I just like take my flashlight to defend myself and hit him over the head, then hitting him over the head is still assault. Uh, but the judge will probably say I was right to defend myself. But like, for example, in Germany, and this is something that Drachenlord was, was confronted with in his first conviction, which was years ago, where the judge said it's only self-defense if your life is in danger. right? Because in Germany, we have the expectation. I know this is very different in the US, certainly. But in Germany, we have uh, Gewaltmonopol des Staates, uh, the uh, violence monopoly of the state. Um, I don't know what the legal term would be in English. Um, 
it means that you know only the state is allowed to use force if necessary. So uh, the expectation from the state towards me, if, if somebody threatens me in my home, um, I should call the police and then the police sorts it out. Now, if the police doesn't get there in time and the guy threatens my life, I can defend myself, but only if he threatens my life, right? So if somebody breaks into my flat and starts smashing my furniture and then I call the police and I can't just hurt them, right? Um, I, the police has to arrest him. If he's not threatening my life, then I'm not supposed to hurt them. Now, there are cases where, you know, you could do that and then you're in front of the judge and you go like, for example, me, I'm some, I've never got in trouble with the law. Um, you know, I, I, I would say the guy was smashing up my furniture. I was fearing for my, my, my and my wife's life and I had to do something. And then the judge would probably, especially if the guy is like, you know, known for breaking and, and breaking and entering, right? They, I, I would probably, if I like dressed properly in court and acquitted myself, uh, un, unlike a drachen lord, like a, like a respectable person, um, I would uh, probably get off. Like the, the judge would probably say, yes, you, in this case, you probably committed the crime, but you know, in this situation, it's understandable. But they would warn me, right? They would say, you, you were not allowed to do this. You, you should not do this. You have to wait for the police. And this is what they told Drachenlord again and again and again. The police turn up there and they said, we know that it's a problem. We know that people are like harassing you, um, but you can't just defend yourself. They're not threatening your life. Anyway, um, Steve uh, goes on. But full disclosure, I actually think that people should have the right to some form of defense of their house. For me, a person's house is sacred. I'm sure not going to someone's house. I'm sure not going to someone's house to intimidate them and won't actually go in a person's house unless I know them rather well. And due to previous events, I have a nice camera outside that records. So if an unwanted person does show up, I have a nice evidence video of how the events unfold. I've actually had to use that before and it worked great. Well, you know, I agree with you with all that. Um, I would. I also think people's house is sacred. There's actually the German Constitution says that. Um, that that's mostly defending me against the state. But you know, the spirit is there, and it's the same. If somebody breaks and enters, um, it's legally understood that you know it's it's my house, and I, I can actually to some de degree defend it. But are you only supposed to do that if my life is threatened? And the police, it's the police jobs to do job to do that. Um, also, obviously for. Privacy, privacy, privacy reasons. Uh, in Germany, it's uh, a bit a bit difficult to put up a camera. So. But generally, you don't really need that because, as I said before, if somebody breaks into your home, um, if if there's a court case, like even if you're, um, even if I hurt them and and like I get um, indicted for a crime, and that crime is then being. Um, I mean, the breaking and entering would be another suit, you know, another uh, legal uh, uh, court case. But like in my court case, where it's about the, like having hurt the person who broke into my house, um, it's not like generally I would kind of have to prove why. It, like it's kind of obvious. It's my home. Somebody broke in. They have no right to break in. So like the law is already like pretty much against them. So we don't really, I don't feel like I need that. Um you know, in the whole Drachenort situation, yes, the police needed like 40 minutes to get there. But that's like the thing I was saying. That's because he lived in the fucking middle of nowhere in Bavaria. 
right? If he he could have, as I said before, he could have solved this very problem by just moving to Hamburg or Düsseldorf, where I live now. Like if if a situation like that unfolded right here where I live, and people would be like lining up in the street to throw shit at my house, like the nearest police station is literally two minutes away, but on foot, and there's a you know much higher police presence here uh, than in a um, uh, in, a, in a small Bavarian village, and they are very much more forceful with situations like this. Um, they don't take any shit, and you could see that when uh, Drachenlot actually, you know, his, uh, his his girlfriend. I don't know if she's still his current girlfriend. We don't really know that, um, but you know, she was from Düsseldorf, which is in the rural area, which is close to where I'm. Um, and when he actually called the police there, they immediately closed the complete road where she lives threw everybody who doesn't live there off the road and he actually gave him a police escort uh, for as long as so nobody could follow him right because if you're an actual like big city you know where the police has the resources um, and they have like basically um, I don't know why in Bavaria in a small town like this people just take for granted that this happens and it turns everybody's life into shit like in where I live here people would not accept that Right, they would go like there's people gathering in the street every day, and people can't sleep, and everybody's it's like, it's hell for them. Why the fuck isn't the police doing anything about this? Why the fuck isn't like uh, the government doing anything about this? And the local government, right, the city council, whatever. And like even in Düsseldorf, they're a lot more less affair than in Hamburg. Like in Hamburg, if you do something like this, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna come with the big uh, water cannon truck. Uh, and they're just gonna blast you off the sidewalk. I mean, the, for for historical reasons, because you know the uh, the militant left demolishes uh, certain parts of Hamburg every actually May Day, because coming up, uh, they always demolish like whole streets. Um, uh, they are they are um, well prepared for a situation like this, and they will not like you know they don't care. Like they don't care if they're Nazis or or militant left or Drachenlord hater. They just would not take that shit. Um, yeah. Uh, small update in the, in the Drachenlord um, situation, by the way. He's lost his driver's license now. So he doesn't have a home. Uh, he can't drive his car around anymore because he's lost his driver's license. There's something called a MP, MPU in German, Medizinische Psychologische Untersuchung, uh, a medical psychological evaluation. Uh, we also call it Ioten test, uh, the, the idiot test, uh, colloquially. Um, it's something if you do something it doesn't even have to be on the road um, it's also like with certain crimes that you commit um, the uh, driving uh, authority will basically um, say that uh, we have they, they'll send you a letter and then go like we have uh, because of these reasons made that court case or this happened um, we have um, or if you just keep drink driving and stuff like that right if you uh, we have this point system, and if you get too many points for drink driving, for speeding, whatever, eventually they will do that too. And, and if you have drivers, if you get driver's lessons in Germany, your instructor will say, whatever you do, never get an MPU, it's horrible. Um, so they will send you a letter and they go like, we have we have reason to believe that you're not fit to uh, uh, operate a vehicle, so we will take your driver's license unless you submit to an MPU. And you actually have to get go there and get a an appointment, and this is like companies and government agencies who do this, or like half of half government agencies. I don't know. You go there and they basically evaluate you. They look at you know medical uh, 
if you actually medic like medically fit to drive look at your eyesight and everything and, and if you're using drugs they take blood screenings stuff like that um and then they have a medic uh, a psychological um session with you where they evaluate like if you know if you've been drinking and driving they kind of you kind of have to demonstrate that you actually want to change and you're not doing that anymore and then you have there's like a reaction test on the computer now the problem with that is so the government sent like the the authorities sent uh Drachenlord the request to submit to an mpu with the problem is you can only get an mpu in germany if you have um a postal address if you live somewhere you know in germany you have to be registered with the government where you live it's a very peculiar system and because Drachenlord doesn't have a home he doesn't have that so now he can, cannot get his driver's license back because he can't get the mpu uh, so now he doesn't have a car and he doesn't have a home. So fuck knows what he's doing now. I'm still maintaining that maybe going to jail would have been better for him. Oh my, like, I mean, he could have, if I was him, I was probably like the German, oh, the German legal system can have so much leeway. Like he could have just gotten like, I've got psychological problems, right? And then just presented like his dreams where he's like banging his uh his, his blow-up doll and like uploaded that to the internet he could have just like shown that in court and go like i'm obviously i have problems i can't go to jail like i need psychological and they, they would have probably have sorted them out and that's this thing in germany where you actually don't go to jail especially with offenses that are not that bad like what he got and then um you'd be like uh like in that case you there's bad cases where they actually lock you up where you you know you're it's basically like jail except it's not jail it's a mental institution but there's also the thing where they don't lock you up there's the thing where you like okay he doesn't have a home but where you at home but you're like every day you you go to this institution and they they they're basically instead of jail try to sort you out which i think is a good thing like in germany um we we try to not punish people um by putting them in jail, we'll, we'll, we're trying to get them back on the right path. It doesn't always work. Obviously, it doesn't work in a lot of cases, but you know, generally it works. It would have probably been better for him. I don't know. Anyway, we got some more feedback. Another producer um, suggested um, that I should look at the because I'm a, I'm interested into history, which you know if you listen to this whole show. Um, suggested that I look into the differences in foreign relations today. Uh, between Russia and Germany today and exactly 100 years ago when in 1922 the Treaty of Rapallo was signed which is a famous um, uh, document where basically the uh, the German, the Weimar Republic the first German democratic state and the uh, Soviet um, Union signed a non-aggression and friendship treaty and had uh, you know um, established very cordial uh, foreign relations pretty much until Hitler attacked the Soviet Union um, yeah and, and 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 he was saying he was uh, he was listening about uh, to a um, to a podcast uh, that talked about this and I think this is an interesting idea if I can get to it I might I might actually do an episode on this and I I did a lot of a lot of st I, I read a lot about the Treaty of Rapallo, obviously in university, but my God, that is that is also uh, twenty years ago, almost. So 
it's it's been a long road getting from here to there um so yeah i'm gonna have to read back into this but it sounds like a very interesting idea and uh, it's one of the things i like when uh, listeners uh, become producers and, and and suggest things like this and you don't even have to put your name to it just you know write me go to privatecitizen.press details are all there in the show notes um, and with that, we, we're going to get to something uh, something else important that the producers do for this show. Which is tossing a coin to a podcaster, which is me. If you like this, if you get something out of what I'm doing here, consider supporting it. You don't have to. Uh, I'm not saying this. Uh, I'm, I see, I'm, I'm serious about this, by the way, right? Um, I'm not just saying this. Um, I don't do this to give you like a bad feeling or anything. You don't have to support the show. I mean, you can support it by writing in, by signing up to the forum. I mean, it's 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 totally awesome if you just sign up to the forum and go, I really enjoyed this episode. Or I like what you're doing. That's completely enough. Um, but also, I need to put food on the table. And, um, and as you can tell, I'm, well, I, I'm just working my ass off currently just trying to to make some money because um i don't know uh, i don't know how is it going where you are but like inflation in germany is rampant uh, pretty much everything's like 10 percent more expensive than it was a few months ago um yeah and um um that's not even counting like petrol stuff like that because i mean we're not as good as uh, we 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 shit like the war's happening and our economy goes to shit. This <laughs> is just Germany, whereas like the American economy is like oh yeah, this, we basically live off war. Uh, we just uh, we just fucked. So uh, any, any what I'm trying to say is uh, if if you want to pitch in, uh, every every little bit helps. Uh, I got a Patreon which is like a thing you can sign up and then you can support me monthly, or you can also send money to. Uh, Producers at Fab Industries. How did uh, George W. Bush say back in the day? Don't send. No agenda has a great clip of this. Don't send blankets or water. Just send cash. Just send cash. I don't need blankets or water. Any cash. Um, yes. Or you know, use PayPal. <laughs> Which uh, you know, Elon Musk. We're going to talk about him next episode, uh, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's the value for value model. Uh, thanks to the No Agenda Show for. Um, you know, um, coming up with that. It's basically listener-supported content, which is, I think, is the only way forward. Um, it's the only way. It's, that is the only way to, like, even begin fighting all this rampant propaganda that's happening. Um, right. And then I would like to thank everybody who, who you know, pitched in and who helped out and uh, is helping me pay the bills. So uh, thanks to George's, Steve Ho's, Butterbean's, Rodain the Insane, Michael Small, Jonathan M. Heavy, Michael Mullen Jensen, Dave1i11g, Jaroslav Lichtblau, Jackie Plage, Philip Klostermann, IKN, Bennett Piata, Sandman616, Tobias, Vlad, Mode7, Kaisias, Joe Poser, Rizal, Fadi Mansur, Dirk Didi, Avis, Dick Potter, Mika, Mr. Amish, Cam, Dave Amrish, Ricky M, Barry Williams, Jonathan, RJ Tracy, Rick Bragg, Captain Egghead, Astral C, Road Forster, Super User, D, No Reply, and Crunkle. Thanks to all of you. And also thanks to my Twitch subscribers because I stream this live on Twitch while I record it. I think it's kind of cool. Um, ever since I did a show called Linux Outlaws, 
people have been asking for this kind of thing. Kind of like it. I guess they kind of like. I, I think it's also kind of cool. Um, I mean, podcasts are already good because unless you know, when I write something, lots of people misunderstand me a lot of the time. I feel like if they actually get down to like downloading a podcast and listening to my voice while I talk, while I talk about this, most of this mis this misunderstanding, these understand misunderstandings go away because they know hear my tone of voice when I'm talking about like what I feel about war, and then they're not like, oh, he's a cold-hearted bastard. No, they like, oh yeah, he's going. He's that's just like his way of dealing with it, being analytic or whatever. And it's probably even better if you see my face. So if you want to do that, you can go to Twitch. Um, while I stream this, I would I would love to have a schedule for this kind of thing, but due to my work, um, which did that, the, the good side about being a freelancer is you can just take a day off and ride around on the motorbike, which is great right now, or play a video game. Um, the downside is it's just you can't really plan with a lot of the work you're getting, so I currently I, I don't have a schedule. Um, but anyway, details for that, obviously, Twitch is in every episode, private citizen not press. But I would like to thank my Twitch subscribers who are supporting this. Um, some of them with Jeff Bezos bucks, because if you have Amazon Prime, you can subscribe for free. Uh, so thanks to Mike the Dane, Jonathan MH underscore com, Gal Terran, Alterestris Jim, MTE Sorrow, Redeemer F, Bacon the Pork, and Mode 7 is unavailable. And then I also have to thank ByteMark at ByteMark.co.uk. They're an amazing British cloud hosting company that have been uh, basically, they, they, back in Linux Outlaws days, they gave me two servers and I've been using them ever since to uh, send these audio files to you. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to podcast. So thanks to ByteMark. They're great. I can only recommend them if you're looking for cloud hosting. Um, they're awesome. And that's it for me uh, for this episode. Uh, obviously, uh, the theme song for this show is called Acoustic Roots by Ru Kabzali. And I'm going to play us out now um, with a song that is called, uh, what is this? Uh, Hacienda by Jet Everill. You know, I just, I have a license for uh, Epidemic Sound, aptly named Epidemic Sound. Um, and I just, you know, browse around there for, for songs I like, and I really like this. Um, by the way, they also have good play. If you like these songs, they're all on Spotify uh, and on other music streaming services. I just use Spotify, so... Um, you can you can find all of that. They have cool playlists if you use for you search for epidemics on there. Um, so yeah, this is uh, Jack uh, Jet Jet Everill with Hacienda, and um, I'll see you soon, probably with an episode about Elon Musk. Aim to misbehave. <laughs> <laughs>